Romans chapter 8. Let me read just the first few verses of this chapter. Um, Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 1. It says there, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. You might remember last week as we were looking at Romans chapter 7, Paul is bringing us to the end of ourselves. He's literally, he's telling us, even as believers, um, blood-bought, justified by faith alone, um, that even as believers, we cannot sanctify ourselves. We can't make ourselves holy. We are still radically divided. Sin still dwells in us as an influence in our life. You might remember, in fact, look at real quick at Romans 7 and, um, and look at, uh, well, verse 19. Uh, Romans 7, actually look, look at uh, verse 17. Um, he says, so now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. How many of you all have been there before, right? How many of you all have been there this week? Like, man, I, I, have, I have this desire to do something good, but I don't have the ability to carry it out. I see, I see the very evil thing that I don't want to think or the attitude I don't want to have. I see that continuing to defeat my life. Paul is setting up not a negative perspective. God, Paul is setting up a surrendering perspective. He's leading us to Romans 8 where he says, we have the Holy Spirit of God to depend upon to transform our life. That we can live and walk by not our own strength or as he talks about flesh, but to walk by the Holy Spirit of God. And what he's going to say is, you cannot live the Christian life in your own strength, but only by a moment-by-moment dependence on the Holy Spirit in your life every single day. If you want to be a follower of Christ in a fallen world, you must depend upon, pray to, be influenced by the Holy Spirit of God. Amen? We're going to have to become Holy Spirit Christians. Amen? We, we can't live in ignorance or uh, we, we can't continue to try to do this Christian thing through a self-help process or, or, or through being clever or funny. Or, or we're going to actually have to pray to the Holy Spirit, depend upon the Holy Spirit, be spirit-filled believers. Now, I used to have a, a sales manager uh, that I used to work for. I used to sell things. That might surprise some of you, right? And I I had a sales manager. He used to tell me all the time, corny sells. Be corny. People love corny. People think they don't like corny, but if you're corny with them, they will buy your product. Be corny. So I was the corniest salesman ever, right? And therefore, I was pretty good. But anyways, uh, but listen, there's one corny saying that I'm sold on that was taught to me. 
If all you have is the truth but no Holy Spirit, you will dry up. If all you have is the Holy Spirit but no truth, you will blow up. But if you have both the truth of Scripture and the Holy Spirit, you will grow up. Okay? We have this great gift given to us, the person of the Holy Spirit. And so what I want you to do is I want you to walk with me. I've got quite a bit of scripture today. And what I'm, what I'm going to do is, is I'm just going to give you some teaching on the Holy Spirit so that you can have some understanding. And maybe it's been a while since you've been taught about the Holy Spirit. Uh, maybe you, don't, maybe you, haven't, you haven't learned about the Holy Spirit in your Christian walk yet, and so this might be the first time. Or maybe you're not a believer, you're not a Christian today, and you're investigating the gospel of Jesus Christ. Even for you, this could be so powerful. What does the Bible say about the Holy Spirit of God? God. And so I want to talk under two headings, but there's going to be a lot of scripture today. Two headings so that as we go into Romans chapter 8 next week, we'll kind of have an understanding of who the Holy Spirit is. And the first heading I want to talk under is the person of the Holy Spirit. Who is the Holy Spirit as the Bible talks about him over and over again? And let me just say this, that the Holy Spirit is God. The Holy Spirit is God. And let me give you kind of a a diagram uh, that's kind of been popular in the history of the church. I'm not a big fan of diagrams, and no diagram is really perfect when it comes to teaching about the Holy Spirit or the Trinity of God. But we believe in the triune God, that there's three persons but one God. There's the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And what the Bible teaches is that the Father is divine and eternal and sovereign and is deity. He is God. And the Bible likewise teaches that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is also divine, that he is eternal. There is no beginning, no end. Amen. He's the Alpha and the Omega. You might remember when Thomas came out of his doubt, he reached his hand out on the day after Jesus defeated death, and he touched the side where Jesus had been pierced, and he said, my Lord and my God, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is God. He's not just a good teacher or a nice moral philosopher or a guru. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. But likewise, the Bible teaches that the Holy Spirit is God. Holy Spirit is sovereign, eternal. The Holy Spirit has no beginning, no end. The Holy Spirit is God. All three persons of the Godhead are God, yet they're distinct, okay? So the Father is not the Son, amen? And the Son is not the Father. And the Holy Spirit is not the Son or the Father. They are three distinct persons so united in love in eternity past that, that their, unite, their union in love makes them one God. Amen? And so you're like, okay, okay, okay. You know, the, the, big, the big kind of knock on Christians is you people can't do math. You know, three doesn't equal one, right? Like, like we're, we're kind of made fun of about this. But let me just tell you, the moment that you have a God that you can fully understand is the moment that you don't have God. Amen? He is beyond comprehension. We will not get to the bottom of God. And we ask ourselves, why is it so important to hold the doctrine of the Trinity? Well, number one, because it's what the Bible teaches. Amen. So that's the first start. But the other thing is this, is that this idea of God being Trinity, a triune God, really establishes that relationship is the point of existence. 
That, that in eternity past, the Father has loved the Son, and the Son has loved the Father, and the Holy Spirit has loved the Father and the Son. And they've had a life group together in eternity past, amen? And, and, and they've been in community and loving and expressing love and speaking love and, and having love in, su- in such unified power that when God created all the heavens and the earth and when God created us in his image, he made us for relationship with him. He made us for relationship with each other. He made himself the source of all love and marriage and church and unity between human beings. And diversity is unified in this concept of triune love. You see, this idea of Trinity is the establishment of relationship. And if you have only a one-dimensional God or a one-dimensional religion, you don't have any kind of worldview by which to look at the world. You don't have an optic by which to understand why you hurt, why you struggle with, with wanting to be loved and security and insecurity. But with this triune God, the world begins to make sense, actually, even though you can't fully understand it. God is Father. God is the Son. God is the Holy Spirit. And the Bible clearly teaches that the Holy Spirit is God. And let me take you to a couple passages to kind of uh, identify biblically that it clearly teaches that the Holy Spirit is God. The first passage I want to take you to, and I've got slides for these, I think. I've I've got slides for most of these passages. I think I got it right. But Acts chapter 5, verses 3 and following. And if you've been in church, and if you haven't been in church for in, in your life a lot, uh, this is a kind of a famous uh, story in the Bible for us believers. And uh, it's the story of Ananias and Sapphira when they kept back money. Y'all re- might remember this from the book of Acts. Remember that? And Ananias and Sapphira's like, oh, yeah, we'll give all of our money to the church, right? And then they kept some of it back for themselves, right? And, and that was kind of a, well... As you'll see, it's a bad thing. Acts chapter 5, verse 3. And this is what happens. Peter brings in Ananias. I love this story. I mean, I I don't love this story, but I love this story. I mean, it's a really great. Because Peter, I mean, they are on the church in the book of Acts is having revival. Talk about Holy Spirit, man. People are being added to their number. People are believing in Jesus. They're getting baptized. It's this great moment. I can tell you as a pastor, if I were having that kind of revival at Crosspoint, I might not want to confront anybody because things are going kind of good. You know what I'm saying? Like you might be tempted to like, you know what? I'm just going to kind of ignore the bad stuff that people are doing because things are going so good. And I don't want to create controversy because we're on the uptick. You know what I mean? But Peter, he's filled with the Holy Spirit, no longer a coward like he was in the gospel because of the Holy Spirit, and he brings in this difficult church issue, and in Acts chapter 5, starting in verse 3, here's what it says, Peter brings in Ananias, and Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land while it remained unsold? Did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. And you see what he's saying? He's saying, Ananias, you lied to the Holy Spirit. And by the way, the Holy Spirit's not a force field. We're not talking Jedi theology here. Amen. The Holy Spirit is the person of God. When you lied to the Holy Spirit, you lied to God. Let me give you another passage on the deity of the Holy Spirit. And uh, the book of Hebrews, and chapter 9 and verse 14, listen to how the writer of Hebrews talks about the Holy Spirit. 
he says this, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? There, the writer of Hebrews refers to the Holy Spirit as the eternal spirit. No beginning. And eternality only belongs to God. That's an attribute that only God can have. The Holy Spirit is God. Or take Matthew chapter 28. I always like to quote this passage because this is foundation to our whole mission in the church. What do we exist to do, Crosspoint? We exist to make more and better disciples for Jesus Christ. And listen to the Great Commission, Matthew chapter 28 and verse 19. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. There, clearly, the writer of Matthew is equating the Holy Spirit to God the Father, to God the Son. You could add, I'm not going to read it right now. You can write this in your notes, but also 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 14. It's clear that the Trinity is referred to as God there. Listen to me. The Holy Spirit is God. The Father is God. The Son is God. And the Holy Spirit is God. And they share the same essence and the same deity, but they are distinct persons. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Holy Spirit. There was an old heresy back in the history of the church called modalism. And it it, it referred to the Trinity as if God kind of operated in different modes from time to time. Like, for example, sometimes I'm a pastor Sometimes I'm a daddy. Sometimes I'm a husband. I play different roles. And some people think of the Trinity like, well, it's just one God. And every now and then, like, sometimes he does the the Son of God thing. And sometimes he does the Holy Spirit thing. And sometimes he puts on the Father hat. No, that's not what Scripture teaches. Three distinct persons. I emphasize that so that you'll be clearly taught on who God is. Let us confess rightly who God is. And let us distinguish error from truth when it comes to the Trinity. You see, the Holy Spirit is God. Not only is the Holy Spirit God, but it goes without saying that the Holy Spirit is personal. The Holy Spirit is personal, and this is important as well. In fact, if you go to John, or I've got a slide for this, John chapter 16 and verse 13. And by the way, Jesus taught probably the greatest teaching on the Holy Spirit between John's uh, chapters 14 through 16. But listen to what Jesus, how Jesus refers to the Holy Spirit in John 16 and verse 13. Jesus said, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. Now, in the original language in Greek, spirit is given the Greek word pneuma. And pneuma is put in a, what's called a neuter case. You can have, uh, uh, you can have uh, masculine, feminine, and neuter. And by the way, it doesn't really refer to actual, literal, uh, uh, masculine, feminine. It's just the way that the language works. And so pneuma is put in the neuter case. And yet pronoun is usually put in the same case in gender as the noun it's referring to. But here, John intentionally has in Jesus's mouth and teaching, he puts the pronoun he in the masculine pronoun, even though it's referring to the neuter noun pneuma. And what that means is, is that John is emphasizing what Jesus emphasized, that the Holy Spirit is a person. Everybody say person. He's not a force. 
He's not, uh, he's not just some kind of wavy, kind of invisible, well, he is invisible, but he's not like this kind of force field that we tap into, like some kind of new age teaching or, as I said, Jedi theology. Jesus is emphasizing the personal quality of the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit, like any person, has intelligence, he's wise, he has a mind, he thinks, he has emotions, he has a will and, and, and the capacity to make decisions sovereignly. You see, the Holy Spirit is a person. You're like, well, why is that so important? Well, it's important because when we think about how to relate to the Holy Spirit so he can help us, we need to relate to him as a person, as a person. In fact, look at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 29 through 32, and listen to how Paul talks about our attitude towards each other and ultimately towards the Holy Spirit. He says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as it fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve. Isn't that interesting? Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. This says that we can actually grieve the Holy Spirit of God. And how do we grieve the Holy Spirit since he's a person and he's personal? How do we grieve the Holy Spirit? By corrupting talk coming out of our mouth. By, by cultivating bitterness or anger or clamor or a spirit of unforgiveness. As soon as we begin to walk outside of what the gospel is to us, which is forgiveness, which is dying for us, Jesus took our sins on the cross. He defeated death to give us new life. As soon as we begin to have attitudes outside of the gospel, we begin to grieve the person of the Holy Spirit because he's personal and that's such a powerful idea you see the holy spirit is very personal the holy spirit is god and the holy spirit is personal let me give you some applications before i go to the next heading number one if god if the holy spirit if he is god and if he is personal then our relationship to him should be one of obedience not of convenience Right? Like, I shouldn't just go, oh, I want to feel better today. Holy Spirit, come, make me feel better. Or, oh, I'm, I'm in a difficult situation. I, I want my will to be done. Holy Spirit, help me to get my plan done. If he's personal, if he's God, then our relationship should be, Holy Spirit, what is your will? Holy Spirit, what are you calling me to do in this moment? I should live a moment-by-moment relationship to the person of the Holy Spirit. And I can tell you, let me just full confession. I hope you won't disqualify me from ministry by me saying this. But I can tell you that I've gone through significant seasons in my life where I've only talked to the Holy Spirit right before I preach. Or I've only talked to the Holy Spirit right before, I don't know, I talk to somebody about God. I have oftentimes, too many times, I'm embarrassed to admit how much I have failed to depend upon the Holy Spirit, even when I'm just driving down the, down the road in my car, and have a relationship to the Holy Spirit of God. You see, our relationship to the Holy Spirit is one of obedience, not just of convenience. The second thing is this, 
that the Holy Spirit is the fullness of God. And the Bible says we're sealed by the Holy Spirit. He comes into our life the moment we become a Christian. And if that's true, then that means you have all of God available to you. You don't have to bring God to you anymore. God has brought you into his life, into his world, and he's filled you. Amen. He is with you. He will never leave you or forsake you because of the Holy Spirit. You have the fullness of God. You are a temple of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I didn't have time to put that passage up on the screen. You are a temple by which the Holy Spirit dwells, and that means that God dwells in you. You're like a walking church. You're a walking people of God at all times. That's why we don't need a fancy temple. Can I get an amen? We don't need fancy bricks. We don't need fancy stained glass all the time. We are the church. We're not brick and mortar. We're people relating to each other in Jesus Christ, and then we're going out as his witnesses, and we're overcoming sin, not because we're so great, but because God is great in us through the Holy Spirit of God. Amen. And you know, that's why, interesting passage, by the way, I, I wanted to pull this up. I told you I had a lot of passages today, so you're just doubly blessed. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 4. This is a very interesting, fascinating passage. But 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 4 says this, by which he has granted to us precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire we have we're partakers of divine nature that's like right i mean i should just send you home now to think about that for the rest of the day now What that doesn't mean, it doesn't mean we are God, right? It's humbling because it's because of Jesus and it's because of grace and forgiveness. But what it does mean is that we are in God. The life of God dwells in the soul of human beings miraculously. And that gives us encouragement, doesn't it? It gives us encouragement. So listen, the person of the Holy Spirit, obedience, not convenience, the fullness of God in us. And here's a third implication or application. The Trinity points to consistency. If the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are one and united, if if they are never divided, then that means the Holy Spirit is never going to say or do anything that's inconsistent with what the Bible reveals about the Father and the Son in Scripture. Amen? Amen. And why, now, why is that important? Because there's a lot of Holy Ghost talk out there. You, you know that, right? On TV and preachers and teachers. And there's, there's a lot of things being said. And it's really easy to say, oh, this is a Holy Ghost moment or the Holy Ghost is at work. And I'm not against that kind of language. In fact, I'm for it. I'm for Holy Spirit language. But here's what you and I have to do. We have to be discerning. And we have to evaluate what's being said about spiritual things. And we have to remember that the Holy Spirit is not going to do anything to us or say anything to us or do something that's inconsistent with what we know about the Father and what we know about Jesus Christ as it's revealed in Holy Scripture. In fact, the Holy Spirit is the one that inspired the personalities of the prophets and the apostles to 
to give us Holy Scripture so that we can evaluate and discern between error and truth. Because listen to me, Satan knows how to counterfeit the Holy Spirit so that people are deceived. You know that, right? Through powers and signs and wonders, there can be counterfeit powers and counterfeit miracles or counterfeit teachings that sound good, that taste good, that come in nice and smooth. And it goes, oh, that feels like the Holy Spirit because the hair standing on the back of my neck. And that sounds really good because it props me up as important and it encourages me through the week. But listen to me, you and I cannot be deceived by Satan in the way that you won't be deceived. Is by making sure that what you hear about the Holy Spirit is consistent with this and the Father and the Son and walking through a world of error, discerning truth from error, the person of the Holy Spirit. That leads me to my second heading, though. Moving from the person of the Holy Spirit, he is God and he is personal. Let us move to the work of the Holy Spirit. And it's set up talking about what is the work of the Holy Spirit Let me just guide you to Ephesians chapter 5 and verses 15 and following. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn there. Ephesians 5, verses 15 and following. The Apostle Paul, writing to the church in Ephesus, writes this. He says, um, look carefully then... How you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Well, that hasn't changed, has it? Right? Therefore, do not be foolish. It's very easy to be foolish, isn't it? It seems as even, it's never been more easier to be a fool than it is right now in the day we're living in. So many opportunities. The, the ubiquitous forums to be absolutely foolish are everywhere around us. Social media, Facebook, Instagram, Snapshot, Snap Clock, Snap whatever. How, how easy it is to be foolish and to listen to a lot of foolishness. And to taste a lot of foolishness. And then to get angry in a foolish way at the fools who are being foolish. Can I get an amen? See, it's like, that's what happens to me. Like, you know, I'm pretty wise most of the time. Okay, pray for me. But, But what happens to me is I start listening to all the fools. And then I start getting angry in a foolish way. And then I just become an idiot. Paul says, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Man, hear that, hear that. Understand what the will of the Lord is. And I love that word understand. You know, a spirit-filled life is not, it's not like somehow outside of thinking. You know, it it starts with our mind. The battlefield for a spirit-filled life is our mind. And to be distracted, to let our mind constantly be distracted by all these things, phones and iPads and all this stuff. What you're doing is, is you're, you're giving your mind up so that you can't hear what God is saying through your mind and through thoughts and understanding. Understand what the will of the Lord is. Then he says, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. 
But be filled with the Holy Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. The operative verse is verse 18. Don't get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now that word filled is interesting. It's a present tense verb, and it's passive. It means that you're not filling yourself up with the Holy Spirit, but you're allowing the Holy Spirit to fill you. And the word is a Greek word called pleroo, to be filled. It literally means to be controlled by or influenced by. So it, it's not like the Holy Spirit's like leaving and coming in and out and leaving and coming out, and there's all these different baptisms in the Holy Spirit. What it's saying is you have the Holy Spirit, but does the Holy Spirit have you? Are you being influenced by the Holy Spirit? Are you passively surrendering to him so that he can fill you up with his presence, with his influence in your life? You know, sometimes we sing songs, and, you know, I don't know. I mean, some of these songs, I I like them and I don't like them. You know, like, Holy Spirit, come, you know, and Holy Spirit, fill this place. You know, we start singing. I'll never sing again. I'm sorry. (laughs) You know, but we kind of start, but we have this mind like, you know, he's coming and going. But I think what, what's, what's behind those lyrics is the idea of, Holy Spirit, I know you're here, but please start to influence my life. Start to control my life. There's only one baptism by the Holy Spirit, and that's when you're converted. The Bible says you're baptized into the body of Jesus Christ spiritually, Okay. But after that, there's subsequent feelings in our life for our life as we come under his influence. You know, Peter and John in the book of Acts are constantly being filled for occasions or they're constantly praying so that they'll be influenced so that they can have bold witness, so that they can follow God, so that they can experience the God that, meant, that God meant for them to have. And you can see that it's about influence and control when he contrasts it with getting drunk. Because when you drink wine, you drink too much wine, you start getting tipsy. And then you go from tipsy to getting drunk and all of those things happen. And you come under the influence of intoxication and you can't walk straight. And you're all stumbling all over the place and everything like that. I know nothing about that. I've never done that before in my life. But, but I've seen it, right? And, and so you see somebody doing a field test with a policeman, you know, who might be getting a DUI. And he's trying to touch his nose and, and do the ABCs. And he can't do it because he's under the influence influence of too much alcohol. He says, don't be under the influence of alcohol, but use that as an illustration in your mind. Can I be influenced by the Holy Spirit so I'm staying on the straight and narrow, so I'm following God, so that I'm steady in God? Don't use your mind. And he talks about singing to one another and worshiping in community. It's, it's passages like this where the Bible keeps telling us to do things like be led by the Spirit, be filled by the Spirit, keep in step with the Holy Spirit, walk by the Holy Spirit. And so with that kind of understanding and that kind of command that we're to, to obey, to be filled by the Holy Spirit, let's talk about a few things that really identify the work of the Holy Spirit as we're seeking to be filled by the Holy Spirit. What does the Holy Spirit do? Number one... The Holy Spirit bears witness to Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit bears witness with Jesus Christ. John chapter 15 and verse 26, Jesus says it like this, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you 
from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. Jesus keeps talking about the Holy Spirit like the helper. He's the helper. I love that because I need help. Amen. Do you need help? I need help. He's the helper. And what does the Holy Spirit do? What does he help us to do? He bears witness about Jesus Christ. Now, if I'm preaching about Jesus or sharing Jesus, ultimately, people believing in Jesus, it's not going to come down to my words or eloquence. Amen. Hallelujah. But people believing in Jesus is going to come down to the Holy Spirit. But as I speak Jesus' message, I can be sure that the Holy Spirit is bearing witness about Jesus himself to the hearts and minds of unbelievers. As I'm thinking about how can I be a follower of Jesus, I can read scripture and trust that the Holy Spirit is bearing witness to Christ in my life as I go to scripture. The Holy Spirit's role is to give us and point us to and lead us to Jesus Christ. Now think about Mary, right? Here's this virgin, this young girl in this small town. And the angel comes to her and says, you are going to bear the son of God. Remember? And she's like, how is that going to happen? How is the life of the Messiah going to come into my life? Remember what the angel said? The angel said, the Holy Spirit will overshadow you. And he will be conceived by the Holy Spirit. And that physical miracle, right, that happened just by the presence of the Holy Spirit is a great picture of all believers, both how we're born again and how the life of Christ fills our hearts and our minds. It's the Holy Spirit. Spirit who bears witness to Jesus Christ. He brings Christ into our life. He brings the words of Christ into our life and the, the power of Christ into our life. He bears witness to Jesus Christ. Secondly, the Holy Spirit applies salvation to people. He gives and seals salvation in people. I'm going back to that passage in Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 30, where Paul says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of salvation. Salvation comes in, and the Holy Spirit seals up our salvation in Christ. Now, in Romans, as we've been going through the book of Romans, we've been talking about we're justified by faith alone and not by works. The moment we believe in Jesus Christ, we are held accountable not for our sin, but we are held accountable for the righteousness of Jesus Christ before God. Amen. Hallelujah. By faith alone. You're not going to work your way up to heaven. Heaven has worked its way down to you in Jesus Christ. And the moment we believe and we're justified by grace, the Holy Spirit seals that up. And keeps it in us. Ephesians chapter 1. I don't have a slide for this. But Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 13. In him you also. When you heard the word of truth. The gospel of your salvation. And believed in him. Were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Isn't that fantastic? If somebody, There might be somebody here who's like. How do I become a Christian? How does that happen? You hear the word of truth. Even though you've sinned against the Ten Commandments, even though you've sinned against the Holy God, Jesus died for you on the cross and he defeated death. And even now the Holy Spirit could be opening up your hearts and, and really breaking your hard heart towards God so that you're softening towards him and you believe in him. And the moment you believe in him, the promise is the Holy Spirit will 
seal up that deal between you and God. He'll seal up the reconciliation that's happened between you and God. And you will be saved forever and you will go into eternity. And you don't need a priest and you don't need holy water and you don't need a sacrament and you don't need a ritual. You need a personal belief in Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Jesus said, all who come to me, I will in no way cast out. Believe in Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And your salvation will be kept not by your works or your efforts. It will be kept by the Holy Spirit of God. Because once you enter into that relationship, you cannot lose it. You will persevere in your faith. The Holy Spirit will finish the work that God has begun in you this very day. Amen. You see, the Holy Spirit applies and gives and seals up and gives us salvation. Like, how's that work though? I mean, what's the dynamics of how the Holy Spirit kind of applies salvation and seals salvation? And I always like to think of it as two, he does two things. Number one, he convicts us of our unrighteousness. He convicts. You know, that word convicts means he cuts. That's what that word means. It means to cut. But the Holy Spirit doesn't cut with like a big sword. He cuts with like a scalpel. He just begins to, he begins to poke and prod. It's, it's very uncomfortable, by the way, right? It's like a doctor coming to you and saying, yep, you're sick. I've got a cut you up a little bit. You're like, oh, good. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He, he, he cuts our hearts. He reveals to us that we're broken, willfully broken. Accountabil- we're, we're, we're accountable to our brokenness. We feel that surgery happening. Remember when Peter was filled by the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 7 or Acts chapter 2? And the crowd was there, and he preached the gospel. And you know what he said to the big crowd of people, right? He's got this big mega church right before him. And he said, you killed Jesus. And at the end of it, they were, it says that they were convicted. They were cut to the heart. And they said, what must we do to be saved? And, G- and Peter said, believe. Believe in Jesus and be baptized. See, that conviction. But just like he's a doctor who brings the scalpel and surgery, he's also the doctor who stands above you when you wake up after that surgery and he looks at you and he moves you from conviction to comfort and he says, you're saved. You're healed. You're healed. Let the Holy Spirit speak over us that comfort and that healing. Let him also continue to convict us so that we can avail ourselves to this surgery and this transformation that God is doing in our life. See, the Holy Spirit applies salvation. Karl Barth was the one who said, you know, the the Father did creation, the Son does reconciliation, the Holy Spirit applies redemption. And of course, in each of those acts, they're all three working in different ways, but the primary role of the Father was creation, the primary role of Jesus was reconciliation, and the primary role of the Holy Spirit is to apply redemption to our lives. Here's the final thing, and then we'll be done. What is the work of the Holy Spirit? He bears witness. He applies salvation. The third thing is, is that he is our moment-by-moment helper. Moment-by-moment helper. In John chapter, there's so many passages I could go to, but John chapter 14, verses 26 and 27 Jesus says, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. 
My peace I give to you, not as the world gives to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Jesus is like, I'm going to leave you. I'm going to die, defeat death. I'm going to ascend to the right hand of the Father. But I will always be with you to the end of the age. So how can Jesus both be at the right hand of the Father and yet always be present with us? Well, it's the Holy Spirit who makes Jesus present with us through bearing witness to Scripture, reminding us of the words of Jesus and the words of Scripture. He is our moment-by-moment helper. And that's what Paul is going to argue. And we'll talk about some of that from Romans 8 next week when Paul says you need a moment-by-moment reliance on the Holy Spirit of God to experience transformation. And here's some of the things that the, that the helper, the Holy Spirit, gives to us every single day and that's available every moment of our lives. Number one, the Holy Spirit gives us moment-by-moment moment comfort in times of stress or anxiety or fear. Amen? He's our comforter. The second thing that he gives us every moment that is available to us in the strength of the Holy Spirit every moment is he gives us moral transformation. I can't talk about the Holy Spirit without going to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, which talks about the fruit of the Holy Spirit. You know, what does spiritual transformation look like? Well, spiritual transformation looks like moral transformation, amen? There's no use talking about spiritual transformation if it doesn't add up to moral transformation, and that's what the Holy Spirit gives to us. Galatians 5, verses 19 and following, listen to this. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Holy Spirit. That's transformation. It's interesting, isn't it? You know, deeds is things I do in my own strength. Fruit has a different source. Fruit has a different source. It's the outcome of abiding in a different source. And as we abide in the Holy Spirit... As, as we listen to him talk through scripture, as we allow him to bear witness to our spirits about Jesus Christ, the natural outcome will be the fruit of the spirit. And what leads the fruit of the spirit? Love, love, of course love. Love is the very essence and driver of all moral transformation. In fact, moral transformation and virtue cannot be defined as virtue unless it's flowing out of love, out of love for God and out of love for each other. And the Holy Spirit bears that fruit in our lives. Here's the third thing. Not only does the Holy Spirit offer moment-by-moment comfort and moment-by-moment moral transformation, but he also gives us illumination. He helps us to both understand and love Scripture. I won't go to the passages now because we've read some of them. John 14, 26 would be one of them. Also, you could read 1 Corinthians chapter 2. John Calvin said about 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he said, The Holy Spirit seals the truth in our mind. 
So, you know, the Bible, there's, there's no mystical meaning behind the words of the Bible, amen? Like, it's a very rational book. You can use your mind, you can study the Bible, and anybody who's educated can understand it. You can do papers on it. You can go to seminary and pass tests. There are many professors in seminaries that know the Bible better than any pastor that pastors the church. Many people, anybody can know the Bible. Demons know the Bible. They know the truth of the Bible. They can understand it intellectually. They, they can, they can, you can study it and memorize it and get Sunday school badges and awards for it. But here's the problem is, is we don't love the truth. That's our big problem as sinners. We don't love the truth. We, we're not settled that, that the truth is the best thing for our lives. We're not settled that God's way is really the best way. Because we're human beings and we're, we're rebels. We're not only lawbreakers, we're law haters because we're God haters. We're at war with God in our minds. So even though we can understand intellectually and rationally what the Bible is saying, we don't love it. But that's where the Holy Spirit comes. Because as you study scripture, as you listen to sermons about the Bible, or as you get in life group and talk about the Bible, you can pray to the Holy Spirit and say, Holy Spirit, not only help my mind to understand the truth, help my heart to love the truth. Help my heart to be set free by the truth. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Holy Spirit, help me to love what God loves, to hate what God hates. Help me to walk and love and desire what you have. That is illumination. And that's what the Holy Spirit gives to us. You can read about that in 1 Corinthians 2. Here's the other thing, the time I have. Remain, how much time? Yeah, I've got a little. Well, not a lot of time. Okay. Not only does he give us moment-by-moment comfort, moral transformation, illumination, but he also leads us to do God's will, even when it's difficult. Now watch this. If you're looking to be filled by the Holy Spirit and being led, you have to be open to wherever that might take you, wherever that might take you. See, we're Americans. We're like, God's will must always include pasture and big land and big houses and nice stuff. And, and you know, God's will must be this great prosperous thing because we're Americans. And, we're, you know, I mean, God, guns, and guts made America free. Can I get an amen? I mean, we're, we're talking about we are free people, liberated to go and enjoy everything we possibly can. And so when we talk about God's will, we always think, well, God's will must be this great pleasure like thing all the time. And here's the truth. If you're going to be led by the Holy Spirit, it might lead you to mountaintops, and oftentimes it will, but it also might include a wilderness or a valley. And if the Holy Spirit leads you there, he will sustain you in that wilderness. But that wilderness might be God's will for your life. Remember Jesus. It says that after Jesus got baptized, the Spirit came upon him in the form of a dove. And what was the first thing the Holy Spirit did in Jesus' life? Led him out into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. Wow. And there goes Jesus. He doesn't get to eat for 40 days and 40 nights. And then he has to go through the temptation because he was completely a human being. Even though he's the eternal son of God, he didn't cheat. Like he was fully human, being tempted as we are, yet without sin. And he goes there and he hungers just like you and I. And he thirsts like you and I. And that was the Holy Spirit's will for his life. And yet the Holy Spirit sustained him there. And the Holy Spirit of God, as you're being spirit-filled, might lead you to a wilderness. Don't be angry at God because of that. Don't grow bitter. I know it's difficult, but he's with you. 
And when you come out on the other side of that wilderness of that desert, you'll be more of a man or a woman of God than you ever thought you could have been. You'll be prepared for the ministry for your life. You'll be prepared to to minister to other people who've been afflicted as you are. You'll become more of a minister through your own suffering and testimony than you ever could have otherwise. The Holy Spirit leads us in the will of God for our life, even sometimes when it's painful. Let me give you two more things, moment by moment. The Holy Spirit intercedes for us in prayer, which we'll talk about in Romans chapter 8, maybe next week. We might get to that part. (laughs) Can I tell you a story real quick about that one? The Holy Spirit intercedes for us in prayer. When I was a teenager, I was just like stuck on stupid. Can I get, I mean, don't, yeah. And what happened is, is my mom was really burdened for me. I mean, I really bothered her. And I would wake up in the morning and go charging out of the door to go to school. I'd get in my Camaro that had a pull-out stereo, Pioneer Super Tuner 3, pull-out, man, it was awesome. Tinted windows, sweet car, great car. Anyways, I'd go out, and sometimes in the morning as I was rushing out of the house, my mom would grab me, and she'd be shaking, not because she was mad, but because she was nervous. And she would sit me down. She'd say, sit down at the kitchen table. And she goes, can I pray for you? And I'd be like, oh, my gosh. I mean, you know, it's like, oh. you know, and she put her hands on my hands. And one time she did this. She goes, I need to pray for you. And I'm like, mom, come on. You know, like, I got to go. And she put her hands on my hands. And she said, Holy Spirit, I have no idea how to pray for him. <laughs> but you do, Right. And it's always stuck out in my mind because I always think, you know, when I don't know what to pray about in my wilderness or when I don't know how how to formulate words in prayer, I can get quiet and say, Holy Spirit, I need you to intercede for me. He's interceding for us every moment. And that's an encouraging thought because I don't know how to intercede for myself. Finally, he equips us to witness. He gives us spiritual gifts. He equips us to speak for God, to be bold for God, to be courageous for God. Some of you are looking for more courage to stand up for God or just to be a great light and to, and to be that strong influence and witness. And the Holy Spirit does that. I, 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 you know, you can note that Peter, when it came time for him to bear witness to Jesus Christ while Jesus was dying and getting beat up, Peter denied Jesus three times. He was a total coward. Absolute, utter failure, coward. But when we come into the book of Acts and we look at Peter and the boldness of Peter, we say, what was the difference between Peter in the Gospels when Jesus was dying and Peter in the book of Acts, who's like this great leader of the church, and the difference wasn't Peter's own strength. He didn't go to the gym and work out and get stronger. He didn't, you know, get a checkup from the neck up. What he got was a feeling of, of the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit gave him courage, which he would not have otherwise had. Holy Spirit equips us with courage and gifts and resources to stand up for God. That is the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. Let us depend upon him. Let us pray to him and talk to him and ask him to help us. And next week when we get into the book of Romans chapter 8, we'll get real practical as Paul tells us how the Holy Spirit leads us and how we can be led by the Holy Spirit. So I hope this kind of helped us. Get ready for that chapter in the great book of Romans. Let us pray.